0: So, Nick, I've noticed in my clinic that for a lot of the women that come and see me, I am their only doctor.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think one of the hardest things about that, Faye, is that it's really hard as an OBGYN just not having been in the primary care sphere for a couple of years now to know where to reach out and look for, like, what do I do to do this screening or that screening?
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, I completely have forgotten when to screen people for you know their lipid panel, when to get their A1C, when do they get the colonoscopies? But the good thing is this is all there on the OBG Project.
1: If you head on over to the OBG Project's website, they have a special tab entitled Primary Care that actually has a lot of updates regarding things like treating type 2 diabetes, screening for things like abdominal aortic aneurysm and colonoscopy, lipid therapies all the stuff that was really, really useful to you once upon a time, and you probably forgot, but maybe you need once again.
0: And while I still tell all my patients that they definitely need a primary care doctor and not just an OBGYN, this way at least you're able to kind of hold them over until they do find that PCP.
1: The OBG Project has a product called OBG First that's free for chief residents for one whole year. If you head on over to our website, www.criogsovercopy.com, check out the sidebar and you as a chief resident can get access to all of their stuff for absolutely free. But even if you're not a chief resident, check out the OBG Project look at the resources they have on the website, and get better in your clinic.
0: All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creags Over Coffee.
1: So today's episode is actually going to tackle a pretty contemporary topic and one that's fast moving. Um, as I'm sure all of you are aware right now, the COVID-19 pandemic is taking over now the United States. Um, and there's probably a lot of questions out there about you know, not just your patients, but also for us in general about how do we manage COVID-19? What's the problem with it in pregnancy? Is there anything that we should be aware of? So Faye, what's our learning objective for today, I guess?
0: So today we're going to summarize the recommendations made by our governing bodies. So I've taken a look at ACOG, at SMFM, and things like that, and put together some of the recommendations that are out right now. Um, And of course, you know, today is Wednesday, Wednesday. March 18th, and this is a rapidly evolving process, so certainly things may change in a month, even in a few weeks, so just be aware that that is when we're recording. Two, we're going to discuss methods of reducing burden of disease, both for us as healthcare workers and for our patients, Um, and it is important to keep in mind that this episode is not designed to discuss treatments or vaccines or any novel therapies for COVID-19, and most importantly, this episode is not designed to place blame on any populations. So, Nick, start us off. Tell me a little bit about what do we actually know about COVID-19?
1: COVID-19 is a novel coronavirus that was first identified in Wuhan in the Hubei province of China in December of 2019. It likely originated from some type of livestock animal, though this is still under investigation. You've probably heard of coronaviruses before. I mean, these are things that even on a regular respiratory viral panel, like a normal coronavirus you can pick up and it causes things like the common cold or symptoms like fever, runny nose, sore throat, coughing. Um, And coronaviruses in general are also important to know spread through respiratory droplets. So that means in order to become infected with coronavirus, you must generally be within six feet of a person that's infected and come into contact with those droplets. Droplets, though, can be transmitted via surfaces, and someone who's not infected or not within that radius could come in contact with a surface um, that was contaminated by someone with the virus and then touch their own mouths, nose, eyes, etc., and then get the virus itself. With COVID-19, symptoms usually appear two to 14 days after the exposure and can be mild disease, things as simple as cough and runny nose, as we described before. Um, but significantly, this disease seems to cause more significant sickness in terms of fever and even difficulty breathing and pneumonias. Faye, you know, we've had other stuff in the past. It seems like these other pandemics and things are epidemics of respiratory diseases. Why do we care so much about COVID-19?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Nick, you mentioned that coronavirus, um, certain types of coronavirus can cause the common cold. But in the last few years, we've actually had a lot of scary types of coronavirus. I mean... You must remember SARS in 2003, MERS, and things Uh like that. So just to kind of summarize some of those infections, so SARS, which stood for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Outbreak in 2003, this disease infected about 8,000 people um, and killed just under 800 people. And so the mortality rate from that was about 10%, which is quite high. And then if you recall back in – the early 2010, so 2012, 2015, and then even 2018, there was MERS, or the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome outbreak, altogether killed about 850 people and had a 34.5% mortality rate. So coronavirus can be pretty scary. COVID-19 um, has already caused over 7,000 deaths out of over 180,000 confirmed cases. So it's already caused more deaths than SARS and MERS combined. Um, and it has, right now, we think about a 3 to 4% mortality rate if we are looking at those numbers. So while COVID-19 seems to be less deadly than the other viruses, like I said, it's already killed way more people and it's spreading much more quickly than SARS and MERS. And in the U.S. itself, uh, as of the time of recording this podcast, um, there have been 7,038 cases and 97 deaths, which is a mortality rate of just under 2%. And we will be posting some of the CDC uh, images that show the new cases and deaths uh, from COVID-19. The other things that we want to know is that about 15% of people who catch the disease will have some form of severe illness that requires hospitalization, and 5% of these cases are critical, meaning that these people need to be in the ICU. They may need to be intubated. Um, We also know that mortality rate is higher in older people. So for example, people over the age of 60, and in particular people over the age of 80, um, and also in people who have other medical conditions, so things like cardiopulmonary issues, immunocompromised patients, people who have diabetes, chronic kidney disease, chronic lung disease. So certainly these are populations that are much more vulnerable to COVID-19. That being said, Nick, I mean, I just said all these scary things. So should we all just like go out and get tested for COVID-19 now that it's kind of been spreading throughout the U.S.?
1: I mean, the way that you make it sound in terms of disease, I would maybe say, yes, we should all go get tested. But that's not the way it works, really. Obviously, testing needs to be used on a resource perspective, as well as an accuracy perspective, to ensure that folks who are getting tested are definitely rule-ins for positives and are not false positives, so to speak. Um, So the CDC has published a number of recommendations that we'll have posted on our website, but it basically drops down to three broad categories of testing. The first category they recommend are any hospitalized patients who has signs or symptoms of COVID-19, including fever, cough, shortness of breath. The next category include other symptomatic individuals that are at higher risk, so folks who are like older adults, older than 60, um, or individuals with chronic medical conditions or immunocompromising conditions that could put them at higher risk for poor outcomes, such as those we described already, high fever, shortness of breath, pneumonia. Lastly, any persons, including healthcare personnel, who within 14 days of their own symptom onset had close contact with a suspicious or laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 patient or who have a history of traveling to affected geographic areas within 14 days of symptom onset should also be tested. Um, History of traveling to affected geographic areas at this point, Faye, is practically across the globe now. Um, Right. (laughs) So, But still, again, taking a travel history is important. Um, Current testing is done by polymerase chain reaction PCR, and availability is varied at this point by location as federal and state bodies ramp up, again, testing ability at this point. Now, Faye, I think one of the unique things as obstetrician gynecologists and sort of this initial access to care point that we occupy is that folks can be coming into our office and either asking about COVID-19 in pregnancy or potentially we'll see someone with COVID-19 in pregnancy. What should we know about that particular special situation?
0: Yeah, so I actually pretty much just lifted this entire portion of our talk from the SMFM statement um, that came out on the 11th of March. Um, And we'll also post a link so that everyone can have access to that as well. Basically, we don't know a ton because this is a new process and it's ongoing and developing. And certainly, you know, um, more information will probably be had a year, two years from now when we have that long-term follow-up of patients who have been pregnant with COVID-19. But we'll kind of run through some of the the things that the statement has talked about. Like I said, Um, There is limited information from published scientific reports about the susceptibility of pregnant women and the severity of their infection. However, knowing that pregnant women do uh, happen to get more sick um, with other things like SARS, MERS, and even flu, it may be reasonable to predict that pregnant women may be at greater risk for severe illness, morbidity, or mortality compared to the general population. Um, There was one study of nine women that was just published in The Lancet on the 7th of March that nine women who uh, were studied who had uh, COVID-19, none of them developed severe pneumonia or died, and all of their babies survived, and all the babies tested negative for COVID-19. They also found that there was no evidence of COVID-19 in the breast milk, um, and they also said that if there is temporary separation, women can still express and pump and give breast milk to the infants, though, of course, they should practice proper hand hygiene. Um, so with that being in mind, Nick, what about information about like miscarriage and like congenital malformations or preterm birth? Um, what does SMFM have to say about that?
1: This is so young, all of this, that there's really not a lot of data regarding miscarriage and congenital malformations. And the SMFM statement does mention some things about like fever in the first trimester and risk of these things, but there's not anything that's specific truthfully to COVID 19. From the SARS epidemic, data are reassuring. So this suggests overall that there's not an increased risk of fetal loss or congenital anomalies, um, but we don't really know about COVID 19 specifically. Similarly, there's very little data about COVID-19 causing preterm birth. But again, extrapolating from other respiratory viral infections like influenza, these are associated with adverse neonatal outcomes like low birth weight and preterm birth. um, Though generally, these are thought to kind of confound with just the fact that mom is severely ill at that point. Um, So again, very little data that exists on COVID-19 specifically, but probably at higher risk for adverse maternal and neonatal outcomes. SMFM states that it is reasonable to consider detailed mid-trimester anatomy ultrasound following a first trimester maternal infection or for those with a later infection to do a third trimester growth ultrasound to assess for the risk of fetal anomalies, though, again, not known at this point if there is any effect. Timing of delivery and mode of delivery at this point should not change. There's no indication for mode of delivery changing other than the usual obstetric indications. All right, Faye, so I guess now... That we've gotten through this. I need some like real recommendations for myself. Like, yeah. <laughs> I went to Whole Foods and Stop and Shop and all the other places the other day, and I literally could not find toilet paper. Like, where am I going to get that? Or do I need to be going to get that?
0: Well, I mean, I would say generally, yes, Nick, you probably need toilet paper in your life, but probably not like a whole pallet full. Um, But I think our European um, friends have it right, which is they all have bidets installed in their house. So maybe that would just solve the whole problem of like the toilet paper crisis at this time. (laughs) Um, So first recommendation, maybe think about getting a bidet, guys. But all kidding aside, there will be some changes to our daily lives. So first of all, the Surgeon General, ACOG, and almost all the subspecialty governing bodies have endorsed uh, a statement. Canceling elective surgeries for the time being, um, and ACOG has said that this does not mean delaying surgeries that will negatively affect patient health and safety, such as procedures relating to pregnancy. Certainly, don't delay the you know life-saving ectopic pregnancy procedures that you need to do, but elective surgeries, so things like you know potentially doing your hysterectomy for um, for abnormal uterine bleeding, if the bleeding is well controlled with other types of medications, maybe that can wait. So that's number one. The second one is very obvious for us as healthcare providers, and that's just to practice good hand hygiene. Wash your hands, don't touch your face if you don't have to, and if you're symptomatic, quarantine yourself for 14 days. Um, You should get tested if you fall into the above categories that we talked about, and depending on where you live, there's gonna be different laws and recommendations being enacted. So follow your local and state office, um, whether it's via the news on TV or Facebook or Twitter to see what the latest updates are. And, of course, limit your travel. In Rhode Island, for example, all bars and restaurants are currently closed for two weeks. And um, our governor has banned gatherings of greater than 25 people um, for the next two weeks. And she will be reassessing uh, after that to see if um, these bans need to be loosened or even even tightened some more. So what about people coming into the hospital with suspected or confirmed COVID-19, Nick? How should we be treating those patients?
1: So again, this disease is spread at least by respiratory droplets. So you should notify your infection control personnel and the patient should be moved to a single person room with door closed with droplet precautions in place. So again, gowns, masks, etc. as you usually would. Infants who are born to mothers with COVID-19 infection or suspected COVID-19 infection should also be isolated per an infection control Protocol at your hospital, which is likely very similar to existing droplet precautions that you have. Limiting visitors to patients, if at all possible, is also important. We know that this can be a challenge, particularly in a labor environment where you want to have multiple support people during labor and delivery and in the initial postpartum period. But again, limiting the number of visitors or limiting to just one or two folks who can be with the patient Mm -hmm. will be helpful in terms of reducing the number of potential exposures.
0: And as Nick and I have probably said over and over, this is an evolving process. It's a new thing that we certainly don't know very much about yet. But there are scientists and researchers out there who are trying to collect data and to learn more about this pandemic every day. Um, Someone from our community from, from a, a maternal fetal medicine specialist, um, Dr. Yalda Afshar from UCLA, is actually uh, starting a registry of positive cases in pregnancy with de-identified data. So if you do happen to have a case of COVID-19 in pregnancy and want to share that information with them, you can email her. Her email is yafshar, which is spelled Y-A-F-S-H-A-R, at mednet, spelled M-E-D-N-E-T, Dot UCLA dot edu. All right,
1: guys, thanks for listening. Stay healthy and stay safe out there. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee.
0: If you like this podcast episode, as well as any of our other episodes, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and give us a five-star rating and review.
1: You can find us online on Twitter at CriogsOverCoffee1, on Facebook at over Coffee, on Instagram at over coffee or you can support the podcast, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Coffee. Give us some love and in exchange, we'll give you a shout out or some cool swag.
0: For adjunct learning materials for this episode and every other episode, go onto our website, And
1: If you have a question for us directly or you have an idea for a future episode, email us, criogsovercoffee at gmail.com.